You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and cannabis curious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. This is episode number 306. I'm Susan Sores, the founder and producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the book What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, aka Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 31,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you'd like to be an audience participant. And please support our show by subscribing and leaving us a review. Today, we're talking about a Florida Democrat challenging the gun ban for cannabis consumers. We're going to talk a lot about that, I think. People wanting eco-friendly cannabis? Yes, please. The link between legalization and a reduction in drunk driving? We knew that was coming. Cannabis reducing fatigue? Nipsey Hussle's family launching a retail store? And many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What have you got for us today, Rico? All right, so my story is coming from the Oakland Press, that's Oakland County, Michigan, uh, by Eileen Wingblad. Cannabis store bringing sports legends, car show, pet, uh, pet adoption, fireworks to Walled Lake. Pro football, cool cars, puppies, fireworks, and weed. Five of the coolest things currently available in America, but also five things you'd never really think about enjoying all together at the same damn time until now. If you're a fan of hanging out with sports legends, cool cars, puppies, fireworks, and weed, it looks like on June 25th, Michigan Dispensary Greenhouse of Walled Lakes kicking off their second summer of cannabis celebration with a unique selection of activities I'd personally categorize as perfect uh, and ending the day's festivities with a fireworks show over the lake. Even though it's technically a cannabis function, they're marketing it as a free event, uh, marketing the free event as family friendly outdoors, and it'll be across the street from the actual greenhouse facility. So maybe Michigan's proximity laws don't cover cannabis sales in kid friendly events. I don't know. Uh, but this thing sounds pretty damn awesome. They'll be starting the day out with three hour with a three hour puppy adoptathon with five local pet rescues bringing animals out to find new homes. Then it's three hours of meet and greets with uh, Detroit Lion Hall of Famer Calvin Megatron Johnson. Rob Sims of Primitive Group, followed by a local hero and University of Michigan legend I actually played against in college, Braylon Edwards. It should be noted that Braylon never scored on me, and my backflips were always better. And um, I know that we're old now, Braylon, but we can always run it back anytime, anyplace, motherfucker. <laughs> but anyways, uh, after the meet and greets, in true Michigander fashion, they're doing classic car show with all proceeds being de- donated to the Vets Returning Home Charity for Veterans. I don't have any uh, background info on that organization, but I'm all for weed benefiting uh, the vets. And finally, they'll be ending the day with a fireworks celebration sponsored by Walled Lake Civic Fund. So the information's correct. This thing's being done in partnership with the city. Greenhouse owner Jerry Millen said he loves the opportunity to give back to our communities and bring some of the legendary sports celebrities in Walled Lake in the Oakland County area. Please join us. It's a free event to get back to normal and have a good time. Wow. 
We moved to um, Los Angeles from Chicago 11 years ago. I vowed to never return to the Midwest in the cold months, officially retiring from winter. But the way it's been handled, uh, the way that it's been handling the promotion of its cannabis economy and collaboration with local municipalities, operators, and celebrities from outsiders' point of view, Michigan is in a class of its own. Although Northwestern is not playing Michigan this season unless we end up meeting in the Big Ten Championship, I think I may just have to plan a trip out to the Mitten to show some love. Love to hear from anyone else in the room uh, with any background on Greenhouse or the event scene in Michigan. I can't wait to get the lowdown from my Cannavision correspondent crew down on the ground uh, for this one. This is Rico Lamit, Dobas Dad on the Street for State of Cannabis News Hour. News team, what say you? This event sounds so litty titty, Rico. White Gucci just might have to make an appearance. Man, we might have to make a, take a trip out there, hit the, hit the Clareport, man. What's good? Can we tag along, Jason, in your private jet? PJ's only bitches wheels up. Nice. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Liz. Go ahead, Liz. Oh, I'm sorry. My timer went off at the same time, so we're at time. But I just wanted to say I think it's great that they're normalizing it like this. You know, it's not it's it's mixed in with a lot of things. It's, it seems family friendly. I think that's a great step forward in normalization. I agree, and I know Oakland um, County was they had a rough year um, dealing with the the shooting at one of the schools out there. Um, but their mayor was actually named like Michigan's Mayor of the Year. And they're doing a lot of stuff, just uh, collaborating with the, the cannabis community. So I got to give Michigan its props, man. I do want to go to this event. If I can't, I got to go to some other some other events out there. They all seem pretty dope. Did you say, Rico, that it's in Oakland County? Oakland County, Michigan, yes. Well, that's yes. probably part of the reason why they're having such a hard time out there. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's keep it moving. <laughs> Jason Beck. Private jet hopping, longest continuously operating retailer in the industry with an affinity for the best weed in the world and identification and eradication of booth everywhere. Jason Beck, what you got for us this morning, my man? Oh, yeah. My story today comes out of guess where? That's right. You guessed correctly. Florida, where a Florida Democrat challenges the gun ban for cannabis users. Nikki Freed, the only Democrat amongst Florida's statewide elected officials, might seem like an unlikely champion of the Second Amendment, but Florida's Commissioner of Agriculture and Consumer Affairs, she Freed, oversees medical cannabis and concealed carry permits, both of which are affected by a federal law that prohibits cannabis consumers from owning guns. The ban, the ban Freed argues in a federal lawsuit she filed in April, is illegal and unconstitutional. Well, good job, Nikki Freed. I'm suing the Biden administration because people's rights are being limited. Freed announced on Twitter, medical cannabis is legal and is legal. Guns are legal. This is about people's rights and their freedoms to responsibly have both. In addition to her Second Amendment claim, Freed argues that the ban on gun possession by cannabis users violates a congressional spending writer that bars the Justice Department from interfering with state medical cannabis programs. Florida, where voters approved medical cannabis in 2016, is one of 37 states which such programs freed exist. Freed is asking the U.S. District Court of Northern District of Florida for an injunction barring federal officials from enforcing the gun restrictions against the state medical cannabis patients. Under current law, cannabis consumers who receive or possess firearms are committing a felony punishable by up to 10 years in prison, falsely denying cannabis use on the form required to buy a gun from a federally licensed dealer is another felony punishable by up to five years in prison, but there is actually zero enforcement on any of that shit, so I wouldn't worry about none of that. The form includes a warning that the use or possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law, regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized or medical or adult use purposes in a state where you reside. In, in 2016, the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Ninth Circuit ruled that blocking gun sales to people who have medical cannabis cards is consistent with the Second Amendment because empirical data and legislative demonstrations support a strong link between drug use and violence. And that just to me is totally ridiculous. I can't believe that's even a quote and actually in there. That decision, Freed argues, suffered from a thin and stale factual record and ignored a 2013 study commissioned by the Office of National Drug Control Policy that found that cannabis use does not induce violent crime, she says. The stated factual basis for the Ninth Circuit ruling and similar decisions 
at least as it relates to state law, abiding medical uh, cannabis patients is obsolete and without scientific support. I totally agree with her on that one. Freed will be running against Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, where she's going to lose if she wins the Democratic nomination in August. But on the issue, they'll see eye to eye. The governor's office said he agrees that Floridians should not be deprived of their constitutional right for using uh, a medically medically lawful. And that's the end of the quote there. Well, I'll tell you what, Florida, just take a page out of what Oklahoma did, because Oklahoma has the best law, in my opinion, when it comes to firearms and medical cannabis. And check that shit out. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. She needs to win. She needs to win. People in Florida. She's not going to win. Get out. She doesn't have a chance. She needs to win. She doesn't have a she chance. She needs to win. Jason are, you a, Jason, are you a Floridian? No, you're not. So there's a lot of Floridians in the audience. I see Gary Stein, some other folks out here. And literally the whole gun issue has been a real huge issue. And and the folks that are supportive pro-gun are the number one people that, from a, a numbers perspective, that are getting their medical marijuana card, specifically 55-plus uh, individuals. So um, there needs to be a fix. I would love to hear about the Oklahoma fix and what that is. And, you know, and hopefully we get some new leadership in that will fix not only that issue, but the monopoly that's going on in Florida as well from an operator standpoint. Yeah, thank you, Roz. I mean, she needs to win. Uh, this guy's going to uh, run. She's not going to be Ron DeSantis. It's not even realistic. Why? I mean, attitudes like that, Jason, everything, there's a lot of things are possible. You know, it's just getting out the vote. Ron DeSantis is one of the most popular also- governors in the nation right now. Yes, Susan. It's also possible that hell will freeze over. Uh, but this chick does not have a chance to beat Ron DeSantis, as Jason is correct. Uh, I know that it hurts people to hear that, but Jason is correct on that point. But but what if Ron DeSantis goes for the presidential nomination and there's an opening? He's, he's not, going he's not to going for the presidential nomination. That's, that's Donald all Trump. Uh, all yes, Donald he is. Trump might be gone. Yes, he is. Yep. You know how nope. to triple. Uh, you know how to trigger a Republican. Tell him. Donald Trump ain't going to be president ever again. They're eating their young. They're chewing each other up. You know what? But let's let's get beyond the politics. Uh, I will will tell you this. We hosted a free medical marijuana clinic at our location a couple of weeks ago. And that was an issue with a lot of different people. They're concerned. They want to make sure that they're not going to go to jail, Um, especially veterans who are have been, um, you know, gun carrying permit access to medicine, but they want to make sure they're protected. So today, let's get back to the people that need some protection. Even though, Jason, you're like, oh, it's not going to be enforced. It could be selectively enforced for different people. And I'll just put it to you like that. Great point. Let me right. tell you something. It hasn't been selectively enforced yet. That shit ain't coming down. Yes, that's the way the cops that work, shit. Jason. That is not how, that is, I'm not buying none of that. That's yeah. the way cops work. That's well, that. they just start that database. Yeah, yeah. it has right. been selectively enforced. And if you if if you walk a mile in, in someone's shoe of color, you will be selectively enforced too. Period. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> buying into into any of that shit. Well, you don't have to. Go ahead, Rico. I was saying, let's keep it moving, Jason. Yeah. What's up? Let's smoke this news. All righty, then. Coming up next to the stage. Oh, son of a bitch. Sorry. <laughs> uh, coming up next to the stage. She's a political strategist by day and baker by night. A, fru- a true female multitask her who can not only bake up a storm, but also knows how to make the sausage on Capitol Hill. She's the founder of Panoptic Strategies and our very own Washington Insider. Taking off the apron and stepping up to the mic is none other than Gretchen Gailey. Thank you for that such an eloquent intro there, Jason. Uh, My headline today is coming from Marijuana Moment. Uh, Vermont Governor vetoes bill on safe drug consumption sites and harm reduction. Vermont's governor recently vetoed a bill that would have created a working group tasked with crafting a plan to open safe consumption sites where people could use currently illicit drugs in a medically supervised environment. At a time when more states are exploring and enacting bold harm reduction proposals to mitigate the overdose epidemic, and when even the White House is evidently embracing the broader strategy, Governor Phil Scott shut down a measure passed by the legislature that would have helped create a framework to authorize overdose prevention centers to operate. 
Scott wrote in his veto message earlier this month that it seems counterintuitive to divert resources from proven harm reduction strategies to plan injection sites without clear data on the effectiveness of this approach. As Filter noted, uh, the legislation also contained provisions meant to increase other less controversial harm reduction resources. But the governor focused on the proposed overdose prevention site working group, suggesting that existing data on the efficacy of such facilities might not necessarily apply to Vermont because many prior studies have focused on more populous urban areas compared to his state. Scott stressed that Vermont does currently utilize harm reduction strategies, including syringe programs, distribution of Narcan, fentanyl test strips, and comprehensive community education, which he said are proven evidence-based approaches to saving lives. Unfortunately, this bill proposes to shift state policy and financial resources away from prevention and towards unproven strategies such as overdose prevention sites. It's important to note that what little data exists on this approach is for sites located in large cities, so it's not applicable to the vast majority of Vermont. The governor went on to say that he's awaiting the results of a bill he signed last year to decriminalize uh, buprenorphine, which is commonly used to help people seeking treatment from opioid use disorder. When it comes to drug decriminalization, Scott has clearly signaled that he's not willing to go further, and he recently vetoed a separate legislature passed bill that was viewed by advocates a step towards broader reform. It would have simply tasked the state panel with standardizing personal use amounts of various illegal drugs that could potentially be decriminalized later under subsequent legislation. At the beginning of the year, Vermont lawmakers also filed a more decisive measure to make possession and distribution of low levels of currently illicit drugs punishable by a $50 fine without the threat of jail time, but that did not advance. The sponsors filed similar decriminalization legislation last year, but it too did not receive a vote. A separate bill to remove criminal penalties around plant and fungi-based substances such as psilocybin, mescaline, ibogaine, and DMT was also introduced last year by Representative Brian Cena. When it comes to harm reduction, there's a concerted effort by state lawmakers outside of Vermont as well as the federal government to shift gears as overdose deaths rose to more than 100,000 in 2021. Uh, what I can say about this discussion by the Vermont governor is it does not surprise me. Um, I, I do take, uh, maybe this is the Republican in me since he is a Republican government governor. I, I do see what he's saying is that Vermont is a very different state uh, from maybe these populous areas where they have done these studies and approaches. That's one answer. Uh, but I also think Vermont has clearly shown in the past that it marches to the beat of its own drummer. Um, and they are not a big fan of pushing any laws. Um, they like the people to be able to do what they want uh, hanging out in their houses, uh, out in the woods. Uh, this is Gretchen for State of Canvas News Hour. Hanging out in the woods. <laughs> I mean, I mean, in all fairness, I mean, even if they did pass this thing, it's only going to benefit a small number of people because Vermont is so rural. It'd probably take the average, average Vermontian at least 30 minutes to an hour to even get there. That's one of the hardest words to pronounce, rural. How do you, how do you say it? Rural. 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 R-U-R-A-L. Just say rural. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, it's small and it's kind of homey, but it's not rural. I mean, there's rural areas, but I was just Vermont, Vermont is rural, rural as fuck, okay? I fucking used to it's, go there listen, as a kid. It's kind of homey. It's kind of as it gets. <laughs> All right. And, I, and just I'll to, let you have it. Listen, a, I, a point yeah. to uh, Governor Phil Scott, I mean, the population of Vermont is like 600,000 people. I mean, it, there are major cities which are much larger than this. So I can see why he's not pushing for it in his state. I don't think that every uh, plan out there is a one size fits all. They might have uh, remorse later on. Need safe spaces. They're not going to have any remorse, Rico. <laughs> Can't push rules on people living in rural areas. Exactly. That's why they live in rural areas because they don't abide by the rules. <laughs> Let's keep this thing popping. All right. So up next... My screen just went black. Oh, see the same thing the happened to you that happened here? to what me, the, what the fuck is going on here? She is our newest addition to the team coming up stage next. She's a cannabis patient, plant medicine advocate, Roz McCarthy's right-hand woman on the left coast, and also a radio personality down in Las Vegas. She knows all of the hottest spots, all of the, the hottest people, and she just might be getting Red Man to come to the stage today. Just kidding. Nicole Buffon, what you got for us today? 
<laughs> Thanks, Rico, for that introduction. <laughs> I, I tried to convince Redman to join Clubhouse. He wouldn't, but I'm going to keep working on him. Um, my story today is um, is coming out of um, Hip Hop DX, um, and it is about Nipsey Hussle's family opening a licensed um, marijuana store um, in Los Angeles. It's called the Marathon Collective. A ribbon-cutting ceremony for the store was held on Saturday in Canoga Park. Hustle's brother, Samuel Ashkadam, I don't know how to say their last name, Black Sam, um, told CBS News that the late rapper had always dreamed of opening a legal cannabis store. Marijuana, a lot of times people were going to jail, Black Sam told the outlet. Once it started le legitimizing, it was, a it was a goal. We got to get into this legitimately. He added that Hustle looked at it like alcohol during Prohibition. This is something that Hustle wanted, that we wanted. I'm just happy to be able to open it up. Black Sam also explained that opening the store was good for the whole family. Hustle and his brother's passion for marijuana was recently documented in the Marathon Cultivation, a short 35-minute film uploaded to YouTube in honor of the opening of the Marathon Collective. Exclusive screenings for the Marathon Cultivation took place on May 14th and 15th via the rooftop of the new soon-to-open the Marathon Cl Clothing Store Number 2. The brothers chronicle this journey in the new documentary, The Marathon Cultivation. The film, which Nipsey Hussle had been working on before his death, follows the young rapper and his crew as they maneuvered around the growing demand for Hussle's acclaimed Marathon OG marijuana strain. It chronicles the ups and downs of their then illegal operation and how it came to be a now legal and fully licensed marijuana dispensary in the heart of L.A. Highlights of the film also include Nipsey Hussle giving a walkthrough of the Marathon OG Grow Room and a special appearance by Snoop Dogg. The Marathon Collective is located at 7011 Canoga Avenue in Canoga Park, California. The late rapper's legacy will keep living on with the upcoming opening of the Marathon Clothing Store Number 2 in Los Angeles later this year. The Guardian reports that Hussle's older brother, Samuel, and his family purchased commercial property in the Melrose Arts District in L.A. for the clothing brand. Although a new store in the is in the works, Black Sam plans to turn the surrounding commercial lot around the original store into a community space that offers free music lessons for youth at Crenshaw and Slauson. The future program will replicate the free music production program Hustle completed as a kid. Um, I, I think that um, Nipsey um, in his death is going to have a huge following at this store, the collective. The opening on Saturday was huge. Hundreds of people showed up. I really liked the promotional way that they marketed. They had flags posted up all around the city um, and 50 flags. And so if you found a flag, you were first in line to get into this collective on Saturday. I thought that was brilliant. Um, but I really feel like any other celebrity that has come along and tried to open up a store, it's not gonna have the following like he is going to have the following with the Marathon Collective. This is Nicole Buffong reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear your thoughts. Nicole, thank you for covering this. Um, it's like a follow-up to my story I had a couple of weeks ago. And um, I was not able to get out there this Saturday at a couple of other events that I had to go to. But I cannot wait to check out the new dispensary. Um, I agree with you. I think the marketing was absolutely fantastic. And it has to do um, – their success in the industry is going to have a lot to do with his background um, and his legacy background, him and Black Sam's legacy background before um, yeah, they even eyed – being on the legal side so big ups to um the whole uh family and i was able to get some free gas out here in uh in south central thanks to the uh, state of nipsey hubble nipsey hustle on saturday and um much success to them good luck to everybody and i can't wait to check it out hold on rico so you're telling me that you were able to get free gas from Nipsey Hussle on Sunday, but you weren't able to attend their grand opening on Saturday? I was there on Saturday morning. It's free gas all Saturday morning. I went on my way to picking up my little sister from the airport. Sunday, I had scheduled events I had to be at. So no, I was not able to be there at the launch. Mm -hmm. Just, just, just taking what's just taking the free stuff. I see it. Just I love the, the I love, <laughs> I love the flag idea. I wonder what they look like. That's a really great idea. They look like they look like American flags. Like the marathon continues. Looks like the American flag, except it's in red and white, and it says TMC where the stars are. Um, and so it's just, it was brilliant. They posted these flags up all over the city. And if you found a flag, you had to post a picture of it and then bring it with you on Saturday for the grand opening. 
Yeah, that's a good neighbor. That's a good neighbor idea. He got they got people all over the city. That's yep. that's brilliant. Yep. America. Let's keep All smoking right, news. coming up next, this pinup girl isn't just your ordinary man cave wallpaper. She's an all-around data cruncher that's known a thing or two about numbers and shit. An educator, a brand strategist, healthcare consultant, and founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. It's none other than Liz Rogan. Thank you, Jason. Greetings, everyone. Happy summer solstice. Thank you for joining us today. My story comes from newsmedical.net. It's by Shanae Susan Alex, and it was reviewed by Amy Molyneux. The headline reads, Cannabis Consumption May Relieve Fatigue, according to a new study. So this week, the Journal of Medical Cannabis and Cannabinoids published the results of a study entitled, quote, The Effects of Consuming Cannabis Flower for Treatment of Fatigue, end quote, by Lee et al. And as the title explains, the research was focused on the impacts of cannabis flower consumption in the treatment of fatigue. So I want to note that this is only on flower. They are not looking at uh, concentrates and edibles, other things like that. So um, due to this plethora of federal obstacles, as we constantly talk about, there is an overall scarcity of knowledge of how these widely available cannabis-based products can affect the most fundamental aspects of like a normal body functioning, such as activity and energy levels. Cannabis traditionally has been blamed for amotivational syndrome, which is defined as a decline in goal pursuit, behavioral action, and competitiveness. Uh, fatigue is a characteristic of many illnesses. And a lot of previous studies have demonstrated that giving people with cancer, chronic pain, MS, and Parkinson's medical cannabis and replacing it with other classes of pharmaceutical drugs, that this actually improved their energy levels. On the other hand, there's data that uh, has findings from recent clinical trials that said fatigue was a common side effect of the use of cannabis. Um, the medical and scientific community has provided scar uh, scarce formal guidelines on how does that actually work, the, the, um, what the healthcare providers tell you, and how do they know if that affects energy levels and feelings of fatigue. So in the study, the researchers examined a set of frequent and wise, widely accessible products, which the people actually use. So this is cool. It's like not based on animals. It's actually based on people. But it is self-reporting. They used a it's all in the United States. They use this application called Relief, which you can use to help, um, you know, basically record your symptoms so you can pay attention or, or your, your feelings. And so um, this is real time. The variations in fatigue intensity degrees before and after the cannabis use. They also recorded cannabis flower features such as cannabinoid strength levels, the phenotype, um, the combustion technique, and any other uh, possible experienced adverse effects. So they're recording all of this. The primary outcome was um, basically in cannabis flower, they um, people were the less were the least tired. Um, they they noticed that vaporization actually was one of the worst um, recorded for. Um, symptom alleviation, because they're also looking at symptom alleviation in addition to fatigue. They're not just like, how tired are you? They're like, are your symptoms relieved and how tired are you? So it was kind of interesting. Um, symptomatic alleviation didn't vary between um, the plant phenotypes like sativa, indica, and hybrid. But those who used joints for combusting the flower reported more symptom relief than pipes or vaporizers. And they also reported more energy. Um, the va constant vaporizing cannabis flowers produced worse results than joints, especially for more prolonged symptom alleviation over a longer duration. And this implying that the phytochemical combustion and temperature might affect the alterations in fatigue. So if it's like burnt a lot, is that going to make you more tired or not? They say both vapes and pipes offer little fatigue relief, possibly due to dosage and the relative ease of continually inhaling from a burning joint. THC, CBD, you know, um, and these other uh, minor cannabinoids, you know, there wasn't any consistency throughout it. There were no autonomous predictors. So they're basically looking saying, hey, look, there's got to be a lot more going on in here, um, such as non-cannabinoid chemical constituents and what's going on. So it was just interesting overall, basically saying that, you know, there's, they don't know enough and they need more, more further detailed investigations on how the phytochemical 
ingestion interacts with the user's body overall. So it's kind of interesting study just to look at because I think this is fatigue is something that a lot of us are dealing with right now. Also because kind of the state of things and you're like, is it medical or not? So, hey, maybe we should be smoking joints all day and that would help make it better. So this is Liz Rogan here for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear what you guys think. I Liz, think this, this is, is fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, did you say, you said uh, joints gave better results than, you said bongs, vaporizers. Did you say pipes? Yes, pipes also. That's fascinating. Is, is Does the paper have anything to do with it? It's so weird. If this is not fascinating. This is basic common sense that I've known forever and been telling everybody about this all the time is why I say that vaporizing is a poor method for consumption. No one should be vaporizing weed. Fucking smoke that shit. Or bongs. I've always thought that too. I just don't get the same result. But but not pipes. That's weird. I don't understand that. Well, vaporizing also allows you to consume more of the cannabinoids and terpenes. So burning it is actually burning off a lot of those that has medicinal value. So burning is not always the best uh, method, Jason. Burning yeah. is always the best. We're, there is no other superior method. I no, it's not. Alicia was here. Uh, yeah. Back up, uh, Nicole, and I also work with uh, folks in the vape space. Vape is traditionally a better form of consumption for medical patients. I'm a medical patient, and that is total fake news. I want Dr. Bong's opinion. Dr. Bong, get up here. I'm a medical patient, and when you burn flour, you are – increasing your toxin level that you're receiving from the medicine. And so if you vaporize it, you're not receiving the, as many toxins. And so for me, as a patient, it's better. It, it increases my mucus level if I burn it versus vaporizing it. And someone with living with HIV, increased mucus is not a good thing for me. I'm all about increasing all of my antibodies. So higher toxins, I welcome them. I think it would be really neat to look at the actual smoke from it to see what's coming from it. They kind of said that because the joint was continually burning, like that that was giving you the relief from fatigue. It's interesting because I think traditionally people would think the more you use cannabis, the more fatigue or a motivational symptom you'd had. Sometimes for at nighttime, if I can't sleep, I keep smoking more. So it's kind of interesting just to hear of all these different effects that can be a part of it. I tell you, when I was going through my TBI, um, Nicole turned me on to Da Vinci that has a vaporizer that vaporizes flour. And it was, it was awesome. So um, instead of using oil, you vape, um, it was just dry flour that's put in the chamber and you can heat it and vaporize it that way. And it was a great experience. I'm going to relight the room really quickly. You are tuned into the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Often the things expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. He's a Long Beach-based lover of weed, IP law, and beards. So it should be no one. It should be no surprise that he followed his heart's path in becoming a CEO of Fruit Slabs, a cannabis IP attorney with a beard. Up next, Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today? Thanks for having me today. My headline comes from Kyle Yeager at Marijuana Moment. It's medical marijuana legalization linked to reduced drunk driving and safer roads. Study on auto insurance data suggests a study published in the Journal of Health Economics. Analyzing insurance data from 2014 to 2019 concluded that premiums dropped by about $22 per year after states enacted legalization of medical cannabis, suggesting that cannabis legalization is actually associated with a reduced risk of dangerous driving conditions. This proven contradiction to prohibitionist arguments is music to my ears. The authors of the study posit that the reduction in insurance premiums may be the product of reduced drunk driving in those states, whether that reduction is from the substitution effect of people switching from alcohol to cannabis, or because cannabis consumption does not occur in public, so there's perhaps less public alcohol consumption after legalization. The correlation between access to cannabis and reduced insurance premiums is clear, 
as the study concluded that medical cannabis legalization has reduced auto insurance premiums by $1.5 billion in all states that have currently legalized, with the potential to reduce premiums by an additional $900 million if the remaining states were to legalize, for a combined total of $2.4 billion in payment reductions. The study said, quote, because auto insurance premiums are directly tied to property damage and health outcomes, we find evidence of a positive social impact of medical cannabis on auto safety. The study was unique because it focused on auto insurance trends rather than traffic fatalities. The researchers felt focusing on fatalities only paints an incomplete picture since those represent a very small fraction of accidents and over 99% of crashes have no fatalities. The study's analysis found that reductions in annual premium costs were strongest in areas directly exposed to a dispensary suggesting that increased access to cannabis drives the reduction results. The study also found large declines in premiums with high drunk driving rates prior to legalization. Cameron Ellis, co-author and researcher at Temple University said, quote, the main takeaway is that medical cannabis legalization can actually make the road safer by reducing the prevalence of drunk driving. A separate study done recently found that states that had legalization saw less driving under the influence of marijuana than states that have maintained criminalization. President Joe Biden's infrastructure bill that included, amended, uh, that included an amendment encouraging states that have legalization laws to educate people about impaired driving seems particularly ridiculous given this study's conclusion. But that's pretty consistent with Biden's anti-cannabis history anyway. The reality is that experts and advocates don't have clear and convincing evidence that there is a relationship between THC concentrations in blood and impairment while driving. A study published in 2019 concluded that those who drive at the legal THC limit were not statistically more likely to be involved in an accident than those that had not used marijuana. The legal limit in the study was up to five nanograms per milliliter of blood. Another recent study found that smoking CBD-rich marijuana had, quote, no significant impact on driving capability, even when the participant's blood concentration of THC exceeded the legal limit. And Congressional Research Service determined in 2019 that, quote, studies of the impact of marijuana consumption on the driver's risk of being involved in a crash have produced conflicting results with some studies finding little or no increased risk of a crash from marijuana usage. It would be nice if a copy of this research landed on the desk of all politicians with the information about how much savings there could be if more states legalized highlighted. We are, we are talking less money spent on insurance and less medical expenses resulting from motor vehicle accidents. Who, other than the insurance companies and the drug companies, prefers the reality of more premiums and more people in hospitals? This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. Brandon, this is a fantastic story. Thank you for shedding some truth to the drug driving scenario. The drug driving scenario? Is that what you said? Yes, the drug driving scenario. This is great. Thanks, Brandon, for pulling this article because I think that's always the biggest thing. They're always like, oh, we don't know about the driving. What's the safe level of driving? That's like one of their whole holdups. So it's like, sorry, that doesn't fly. Everyone needs to send this to Pete Buttigieg right now. I'm sorry, Brandon, who, who did the study again? Uh, the study was published in the Journal of Health Economics, and there was a researcher from Temple University named Cameron Ellis who was a co-author. I don't have the names of the other authors of the study. I think Jason meant the drug driving stigma, which we've run into so many times trying to get events in the city of Long Beach. I'm definitely sending this article to every elected official in Long Beach. That's what I'm talking about, Nanogram. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was talking to uh, the dude, I forget his name, that's running for city attorney, and he said that they were concerned uh, during COVID that when they were letting people get uh, to go cocktails, that drunk driving would, would increase, and it, it didn't. I mean, uh, the people that are doing it are going to do it, you know? We've been smoking weed and driving forever, I'm sorry. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Yes. No, in your joint. Okay, I hate to be the naysayer. However, um, the data from this, looking at it's self-reported, and I wish is Chris Eggers around? I guess he isn't. 
Um, I mean, speaking to some law enforcement folks before in the past, they've told me that it's much cheaper for them to look at alcohol than to look into drug testing when arresting someone or find or there's been some type of substance that has caused a crash. And so that the data may not actually be true and correct because cops aren't going to go to the effort of finding out uh, if you're also on drugs when they can easily arrest you for alcohol. Hold on, Gretchen. Are you saying that we have a bunch of lazy cops across the country? Uh, I'm saying the did. data may be skewed and that and cops may be hampered by budgets and not spending the money on drug tests when they can easily figure it out through alcohol. Similar, similar to that department in Michigan that can't afford its fuel. Yeah, no, I'm not buying that at all. Cops want to get as many charges as they can. I think always I th I think, they think, invent charges. I think Gretchen is coming off as extremely anti-law enforcement. I'm just asking a question here because I'm not quite sure of the, the data in this study that we're all loving because I think any prohibitionist could throw this study under the bus because it doesn't seem very uh, concrete. Doesn't seem very robust. I do agree with you, Gretchen. I mean, this was this study was analyzing insurance data. I mean, a key fact in the article was it analyzed insurance data rather than traffic fatalities. No, I, and the authors said that the analyzing of insurance data is what shows that legalization of cannabis leads to safer roads. And that was proven over a five-year longitudinal study. That factoid extracted from this study, I think is extremely relevant. And the fact that maybe there are drunk drivers who then don't get tested for drugs, they were drunk. Let's be real here. The alcohol is the main ingredient in their functional impairment. My, my concern, and if I were someone arguing against a study, are the first two words before they talk about it, self-reported. Uh, so that just, and I'm just trying to say that I think people could poke some holes in this, uh, that I, I, you know, I, I just don't think this is the strongest study they could have done. It may not be the strongest study done, Gretchen, but it is the most relevant today. Yes, it is. And you heard it here first. Gretchen Gailey supports defund the police. Okay. Gretchen does not support defund the police. That's some no. fucking bullshit. <laughs> no. You know that. Let's, let's, let's keep smoking the news, y'all. That was a great conversation, by the way. Coming up next, he's an award-winning journalist with a multicultural background and fifth-generation Californian. Known as a freedom-fighting farmer's friend, this writer, brand consultant, event promoter, and content ninja does it all in the name of uncovering the international truths that the lamestream media does not want you to see. Coming up next to the stage, it's Eric Hess Lareda. Hey, Jason. Thank you for that intro. Hey, everybody. Great to be here today. My headline is from High Times, and it's, American Medical Association adopts cannabis expungement resolution. Uh, jumping right in, the American Medical Association announced last week that it has approved a resolution calling on states that have legalized or decriminalized cannabis to expunge the records of arrests and convictions for cannabis-related offenses that are no longer illegal. The AMA, the largest professional association for physicians in the United States, announced on June 14 that it had formally adopted the policy change at the annual meeting of its House of Delegates held in Chicago last week. In a statement, the AMA wrote that the goal of the policy change is to introduce equity and fairness into the fast-changing effort to legalize cannabis. The group notes that at least 18 states have legalized cannabis for use by adults, and more than three dozen have passed legislation allowing for the use of medical weed. However, in many states, those who were arrested or convicted of cannabis offenses before legalization measures were enacted still carry the burden associated with a criminal record. Quoting, this affects young people aspiring to careers in medicine, as well as many others who are denied housing, education, loans, and job opportunities, said AMA trustee Scott Ferguson. It simply isn't fair to ruin a life based on actions that result in convictions but are subsequently uh, legalized or decriminalized. That's really important. I'm just going to read that again. It is simply isn't fair to ruin a life based on actions that result in convictions but are subsequently legalized or decriminalized. The MA went on to note that even when arrests and conviction records are expunged, affected persons often still face collateral consequences such as disqualification from eligibility for public benefits, such as health insurance programs. The group also called for the expungement process to be automated, acknowledging that relief often entails complex 
or costly measures by those seeking to have their records cleared. Expungement is no panacea, Ferguson said. It can be a lengthy and expensive process. Automatic expungement would relieve people of having to figure out and pay for the bureaucratic steps necessary for uh, sealing a criminal record. The new AMA's policy also calls for an end to probation, parole, or other court-ordered supervision for cannabis-related offenses that are later decriminalized or legalized. The group noted that cannabis prohibition laws have not been applied equitably, with members of historically marginalized communities bearing the brunt of law enforcement and associated negative impact of the war on drugs. The AMA added that black people are 3.6 times more likely to be arrested for cannabis offense, despite data that has consistently shown that blacks and white people consume cannabis at roughly equal rates. And I'm going to add here about uh, some information about arrests for Latinos, the largest minority group in the U.S., because we are often left out of these statistics. In California, for cannabis misdemeanors, arrest rates are 22% white, 13.5% black, and 49% Latino. For felonies, 36% white, 6.5% black, and 39% Latinos. This is from the California Department of Justice. Uh, in addition to its call for state governments to expunge cannabis records, the AMA said that it would discuss expungement with relative medical education and licensing authorities. So I wish I could say this was a completely positive story, but then there's this. Despite its support for clearing, record, uh, for clearing the records of cannabis convictions in states that have enacted marijuana policy reform, the AMA restated the group's opposition to further uh, efforts to legalize cannabis. The AMA offered several reasons for maintaining pot prohibition laws, citing possible negative health effects of cannabis use. So what I think is significant here is that we have a very conservative organization, the AMA, coming out strongly in support of automatic fast-track expungement. Next time these folks are on the golf course, I'm hoping they can talk to Republican lawmakers to get on board, stop dragging their feet, to get some justice for people incarcerated for cannabis, and then the money can flow more freely for everybody. And that's what I've got today. Uh, I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. We've got Snow Constances up from the audience. Snow, did you want to weigh in on Eric's headline? So, uh, I'll be honest with you. I was very excited to just, like, hear about how people think about cannabis use. I am, like, the worst in terms of what it actually means in terms of how it's used. Because I'm that guy who's just like, oh, man, can I just, like, maybe just, like, eat, like, 20 mils. Yeah. Cool. Well, you're the worst guy. Yep. That's me. 100%. Yeah. So, Susan, I'd like to weigh in a little bit on this story. And, you know, I just, I try to understand when you have a group that is so pr uh, against legalization or not wanting to have that conversation, however, go lean really strongly on the social justice side. And those two things are really connected together. And so I, I just want to understand, like, in everything that you're doing from the AMA and looking at, you know, legalization and the use of cannabis for wellness and things of that nature, when did it come up in conversation that we're going to go so strong to do a press release on, you know, on expungement out of, you know, out of everything and, and not even look at or even have a conversation about legalization in totality? So um, I'm not trying to be a, a negative Nelly. Um, but the genesis of where this is coming from, I would definitely ask, ask some questions. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you, Roz. I'm with you. I totally smell a distraction. There's just a sign saying, hey, road closed here, even though the road ain't closed. Hey, Roz, I think right. I, have, um, I might have an answer for you. Part, one of the quotes I couldn't include just for time was about, you know, they make, you know, obviously they have to be this very science-based organization. And there, there was this quote about, you know, associating it with like poison control and traffic fatalities and all this BS. But, you know, they're kind of coming from this position where, oh, it's very statistical how, you know, legalized cannabis would be so, uh, you know, a, a negative for society. So I think they're, that is their, the angle, at least they state in, this, in their statement. That's what, where they're coming from is like why they can't support uh, legalized cannabis. But I totally agree with you. Those are conjoined. I don't see it's That's why I said it's kind of a bipolar, you know, God bless them on expungement. What the hell, you know, on on legalization. Well, I'm gonna tell you something. Expungement, especially from an organization standpoint, it is the core and it's, it's a center of, 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 of a foundation of issues that you fight for. And it doesn't just 
Like it has to be something that is definitely correlated, connected to legalization. And I just sometimes when you have organizations that drive on one issue and you're just you just want to know, like, so where did you guys have this conversation that expungement became this this huge issue that you want to come out with a whole press release? And, you know, and I and I just, you know, I hate like I said, I hate to be a negative Nelly, but I I look under the hood and I would want to, you know, learn more. And um, I did my Lakeisha Camise, who's in the audience. She's our director for Project Clean Slate. I said, you know what? Let's reach out to them and let's let's put their money where their mouth is and see if they're going to do anything. We're putting resources toward, towards helping that happen. Totally agree De- with you, Ross. Totally. De- definitely a great conversation there. We do have to keep it moving. Thank you so much for that story, Eric. Uh, so up next, this badass San Francisco-based can of moms got more titles than the right Scott Strawman arguments in support of safe banking. She's the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and founder of San Fran Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and arguably the smoothest, silkiest vocal cords in the game. Up next, Lara DeCaro. What you got for us today? Hi, everyone. Sorry, I've been kind of quiet today. Um... Uh, my article is about uh, greenwashing, actually. Uh, if you've been paying any kind of attention, you've seen a lot of stories lately about the rise of Juneteenth washing, such as that Walmart ice cream that briefly graced their shelves, and of course, pride washing or rainbow washing, um, such as hollow statements and solidarity and waving of those pride flags or ally flags uh, only in the month of June. But there's another corporate gaslighting effort out there, and it's convincing consumers how much you care about the environment or we call it greenwashing. So my article today is, it's not easy being green. If anybody remembers the old Kermit (laughs) Kermit song, that's what came to mind for me. It says, but people want eco-friendly cannabis. It's by Cannabis and Tech Today and uh, uh, published in Benzinga. So the article starts out pointing to what they call a recent nationwide survey conducted by Cannivate Growing Systems, um, exposing, quote, new expectations of cannabis consumers. Um, indicating that they're concerned about pesticides, climate change, uh, and that they would pay more for, quote, organically grown cannabis and eco-friendly cannabis. But looking back, they didn't do a link to the um, to the survey, and it looks like that's actually from 2019. So I might argue, I mean, of course we know that this is nothing new in cannabis, but um, it's a little disingenuous to say this is, this is, this particular survey is breaking. In any event, Um, the article goes on that consumers want to know that the companies they buy from care about the future of the planet. Of course we do. To hear about their commitment, their strategies, and the metrics that will drive change. And I can say, as an attorney working in this field who deals with a lot of investors, this is actually becoming a real issue with regard to investor capital. These investors are looking at companies who are providing absolute metrics that consumers can rely on that establish their commitment to ESG or environment, social, and governance practices that make sense in a changing business climate. But according to the article, finding cannabis growers who are truly driven by those eco-friendly objectives and not simply giving lip service is a formidable task. Another recent study um, by Colorado State University uh, referred to but also not linked in this article set out to answer this question, quote, which of the following, a joint, a beer, or a cup of coffee is more damaging with regard to climate change? And I would ask Jason to recognize that the answer is the joint, because it's in so indoor grown. <laughs> the conclusion is apparently based on the study's finding that indoor cultivation amounts for 1.7% of Colorado's annual greenhouse gas emissions, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's the same as coal mining, which we have all been taught is environmentally harmful and damaging to our lungs. But they did ignore other components of what might make something a little bit more environmentally damaging uh, other than the carbon footprint. So as the article points out, even in climates where outdoor growing is feasible, early policies that originally sought to facilitate regulation and guard against theft made indoor grows the only viable option. And I'd point out that views like people like Jason have led people to plant indoors anyway. Um, But this is also happening for a variety of other reasons. The appearance of the cannabis, the consistency, and the supply. But consumer and activist groups are continuously seeking to drive this industry towards sustainable cultivation and manufacturing practices. So, according to the article, companies are finding ways to satisfy that growing demand. 
uh, one unfortunate answer is that some companies are regularly quote-unquote greenwashing their brand. Then it goes on to talk about how to discern greenwashing from true sustainability practices, and it points to the UNCOP26 climate change conference in Glasgow, which calls for baseline metrics that you can observe for your ESG reporting. But all of that happens in publicly traded companies that are legitimized on a broader scale, much more than small mom and pop cannabis companies would be required to do. And it, it, it's, it's not indicative of what's actually happening. So I think we as a community really need to stand up. We need to highlight those businesses that are doing good in our community, more so than just, you know, giving back to, um, you, you know, local charities, but really making a big effort to keep the plastics out of our environment. They do go on to highlight one company called Chloris, um, which is attempting to be 100% plastic free uh, in the near future, they say. But they, you know, they don't really dig deep into who's doing what. But it was a really interesting article because I do think it's something we need to lend an ear to, we need to focus on, particularly as we fight back on these excessive packaging regulations and we try to navigate consumer demand for single-use carts with what we're really putting into our oceans and our landfills. So my name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Um, I'd love to hear if anybody has any thoughts on that. I mean, I'll go ahead I was going to say, I think it's something that we're going to be inevitably um, running into. Um, everybody that's pro-cannabis, and you're going to have a lot of environmentalists on the other side saying, like, no, we need to stop this because it is damaging to our environment and where we are right now uh, on, the, on the global environmental and uh, climate change issues. Like, you're going to have some pushback from some big environmentalists when we reach the federal stage on this. I think it's inevitable. I just, uh, I, I mean, I, I think this is kind of more of a feel-good article more than anything um the, the reality of it is that as as a retailer i never have anyone come and ask me what's in sustainable packaging the only first question that they ask 99 percent of the time is what has the highest thc so i don't really believe that consumers care about it as much as like that's what they're basing their purchasing decisions on i do think that if they find out about it after when they're smoking the product it doesn't give them that warm cozy feeling inside but i i'm Grow indoor weed, it's better. I would love to see when federal legalization happens, and Jason's gonna hate this, but I'd love to see some tax breaks for outdoor grows, uh, for folks who are doing more sustainable ways of growing. Uh, the Fed should definitely look at uh, ways to help uh, incentivize people to go that direction. I'm actually for tax breaks for the outdoor outdoor farmer because ultimately a majority of that weed is all gonna be for export. So they're gonna need the tax breaks in order to remain profitable. So I'm all for that. I would say like, you're not hearing a lot about that now, but I would say like gear up for that because I think that's going to be a huge initiative right before federal legalization. I hope so. I, I, do, I do agree with Jason that people don't initially think about it, but sometimes we as an industry have to do the right thing, even though our consumers are not really thinking about it. And I know for myself and, and my brand, Black Buddha, I am being intentional about some of the packaging options and they are more expensive. But I'm being intentional of choosing a biodegradable um, packaging versus plastic. I think it will see more consumers driving this, especially as like there's the younger consumer co contingent coming in and baby boomers, especially with concern about climate change and a lot of things we're facing now. I think that the consumers will drive this. Consumers are only driving up high THC percentages that are all coming from the labs, not to mention they're buying up all the amazing indoor weed in the state. What's your average age group, Jason? We actually have all ages. Um, we're probably a very extremely diverse store as far as uh, demographics are concerned. West Hollywood's a very diverse community. And so I, don't, I, I can't say that there's only one type of customer that comes into the store. And 99% of them just want high THC. 99.99999. You can have both, though, right? We can drive both decisions. 100%. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely can. But as far as the consumer dictating that, there is no basis to, for, for people to spin narratives like that. I don't that. think you can say there's no basis, Jason. But what your experience is, is that people, people going to your store want high, high THC goods. There are people who go to other stores. I, I've never I just had any retailer tell me that, oh my God, have you, there's so many people that are coming asking for sustainable packaging. 
I, I've never heard that from any retailer ever, ever, ever from any state. I, I don't think, and I don't think you will. I think it's the responsibility of those folks that are in the industry to try to make it better and change it. But no, I don't think consumers off, you know, right now, remember we're in a, just a very new, um, you know, commercialized industry. So I don't think that's even a priority for people that are walking into your store. We we could get a room on this. Uh, definitely want to give props to the sustainable farmers in Northern California, but we've reached the end of the show. It was a really good one. If you missed any of it, you can catch it anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being an important part of our show. You've had your daily dose. Now go out there and make a difference and get some tacos. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Somebody sing Smoke Weed Every Day. Who can sing that? Smoke Weed Every Day. (laughs) Sing it, Rico. Smoke Weed Every Day. Hey, what are you still doing here? The show's over. You just don't want to leave, do you? I know. We love you, too. Help us grow by grabbing some of our merch. We've got hats, bags, hoodies, water bottles, all the standards. It would really mean a lot. Go to justsaycare.org backslash shop today. Really, I mean it. Today, with the supply chain issues, you might get it by Christmas. The good news is that inflation will be so bad, you'll be locked into a low, low price. Remember, justsaycare.org. Thanks. Okay, go listen to another podcast. Bye.